This is Haggai 2, 1 through 9, and this is the word of God that came through the prophet Haggai. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong. O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord, be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when I brought you out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, And in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, declares the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Please be seated. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with the kind of the question that's the question of human life. What is the chief purpose of people? What's our chief purpose? And the answer is the chief end or purpose of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And what this means is that God is calling us to bring glory to Him through our lives. It means that through Christ, God has given undeserving sinners the gift of undeserved happiness in Him and with each other. And in Him, and in that joy, and in that relationship, We glorify the Lord in our lives. We glorify Him best when we enjoy Him the most. But what does that look like, to glorify God in our lives? And our passage gives us a window uh, in a very famous contrast between the first and second temple as they are building the second temple. See, God is calling us to do great things. He's calling us to great things, each one of us. The problem, and we would like to think that, right? And we, we should. The problem is how we define great things versus the way God defines great things. Um, a lot of times our great things have to do with external markers of, of accomplishment, such as hitting sales numbers at work, uh, such as making grades and, and GPA averages and Um, that type of thing at school, uh, such as trophies for our sports that prove an accomplishment, such as getting some kind of uh, an upgrade to a a position of more authority and and pay uh, in our job. 
up the corporate ladder, etc., etc. But you know what God says? God says it's what's on the inside that matters. There's nothing wrong with these external markers. There's nothing wrong with doing it. I mean, he wants us to do a great job at work. He wants us to work, you know, study hard, etc. But, but these aren't the great things that glorify him that he's calling us to. We can glorify him through our lives. Great things are defined simply by what glorifies God. Everything in our life has the potential of greatness if it glorifies God. In the book of Haggai, God has given an assignment uh, to his people to build the temple. The temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians. Now they were back. They were to rebuild it. This is an incredibly difficult assignment. There had been some delays. The people they found in the land that were kind of mongrel spiritually between Judaism and and some of the other gods of the region, they, they had to fight those people There was a ceasing of the construction of the temple because those folks actually went to Persia and got like a a cease order. And and in the midst of this, they they just kind of gave up. In the midst of it, uh, they literally took the the building materials given uh, by Cyrus the Great because God had moved his heart to rebuild the temple and they built their own houses. Um, They are living lives for themselves. And Haggai comes and says, no, that's not how we glorify God. First of all, God said build the temple. You are to build this temple. You need to repent. You need to go up on the hill, start cutting the trees, because you've used all the ones that were given to you for yourself. And you need to restart, you need to start rebuilding the temple. And God promises in this passage that the temple that they build will be greater than the one that is replaced. Now, that's easy to say. But if you know your Old Testament history, you already know that's not going to be true. You already know Solomon and all his glory, Solomon and all his resources, Solomon and all his gold and his silver is going to build an ornate temple more than people going up to the tops of the hills to cut uh, Israeli trees instead of cedars of of Lebanon to, to build the temple. And this temple was the, the same size as the old one, but it lacked a lot in comparison to Solomon's temple. But God says this temple will be greater in glory. This temple will glorify me more than the other temple. Now there were some older people who had come back among the Israelites. They would be in their 80s at this time. We read in Ezra 3.13 that when they saw the foundation of the new temple laid. You know what they did? They, they remembered the old temple and they started crying. You know why they cried? It wasn't the, it wasn't the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. It was all these, these other courts that just didn't exist in the new temple. And they thought, oh, if the, if the new temple could be as glorious as the, the old temple. And they wept. But God says, nevertheless, the second house is going to be more glorious than the first. So what do we learn right away is that the glory of the second temple isn't going to be about its building materials. It's not going to be about its shape. It's not going to be about the external things. You can have a really nice house and have a very unhappy family inside. 
It's what's on the inside that matters more than the outside. You can have a great fortress and have a mutiny on the inside. And you might as well not even, you know, try to hold the enemy out if you're fighting each other on the inside. You can have a palace with the best security in the world and have an assassination in the very throne room itself. You can have a beautiful U.S. Capitol building and have nothing but partisan strife going on on the inside, right? No, that's right. (laughs) You can have a temple but not have fidelity to Yahweh. You can have a beautiful church but not have fellowship, not have discipleship. And of course, even people can look good on the outside, but rotting on the inside. Jesus said that of the Pharisees. He said, you know, you look so good on the outside, you're just whitewashed tombs, and inside it's just full of dead men's bones. You see, it's what's on the inside that matters. And, and so let's learn together what made the second house greater in glory than the first house. There are two things that the glory of the house is framed by the promise. And secondly, the glory of the house is is empowered by the presence of the Savior. It's framed by the covenant. It's framed by the promise, and they believed it. And it is empowered by the presence of the Savior. Haggai, speaking on behalf of God, begins to talk about the, the greater glory of the temple as he says, you know, you looked at the temple. Did you, did you consider it just basically nothing when you saw it? And yet, he says, it will be greater in my covenant. will be with you. Verse 3, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Solomon's temple. How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes yet now? Be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord, the governor. O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the work, the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Listen to this. According to the covenant that I made with you when I brought you out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. And what we learn is, is the promise is the same, right? God has not changed. But God is saying, will you believe this promise? Will you who have less, will you who have to trust me more, understand that I am He? The covenant's always, and I will be your God, and you will be my people, and your descendants after you. That's the covenant. Everything is a version of that. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will be with you, whatever you, wherever you go. Be strong, have courage, fear not. Why? Because I've promised. Because I'm with you. We find uh, in Exodus three this this specific, these specific words that God gave to Moses. This is Exodus three. You know when Moses was before the burning bush, and uh, God said, "Take off your sandals for the place that you're standing is holy ground." And God said, "Hey, I got something I want you to do, Moses." You're going down to stand before the greatest, most feared, 
powerful ruler of the world and you're going to say, let my people go. And Moses says, you know, I don't know if I'm the person. I don't know if I can speak. I don't, you know, there's all of this that Moses does. But we hear these words of God to Moses that are being referred to in Haggai because they feel that way too. I don't know if we can do this. Exodus 3, 6. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In Exodus 3, 12, he said, and I will be with you. And he said, this is how they'll know. And here are some signs and I will be with you. I have made a covenant. This is the same covenant. You've got to believe me. I will be with you. I'm the one who makes the difference. And this is the exact place where God gave Moses his covenant name. This is like the name that means I'm always the same. I always love my people. I'll never forsake them and nothing can stop me. When they ask, who is it that sends you to say, let my people go? And when the the Jewish people ask, why is it that that you think you can be our leader and we, we haven't seen you for 40 years? You tell them that I am sent you. The one who is. The one who lives in the eternal present. The one that cannot be stopped. The covenant God who loves His people. I am who I am. The name is Yahweh. So what you're kind of getting here is this. God saying, My name is I am. Hear the play on words. I am who I am. That's big. That's powerful. You got it? I am who I am and I am with you. You see the play on words? If I am is everything and He is with us, then you can go to Egypt. If I am who I am says I am with you and I will be with you and there's no limit to my power and my love remains, you can build that temple. You can be in that temple. And the glory of this temple because of the promise, if you believe this promise and walk in these promises, be strong, do not fear, will be greater. And the prophet Haggai delivers this message about the second house. I will do it through you just as I did Moses. Hey, remember Red Sea? I will do this for you. This will happen. I called, I will fulfill. We hear hear echoes of this in Joshua, don't we? Joshua comes and remember he and Caleb were the only ones that when they came to that first time at Kadesh Barnea at the Holy Land, they said, oh no, we can't do it. Those people are too big. Those people are giants. Those people have chariots. And they they wandered, right, in the wilderness because of their fear. I am can't do this. You, you, You get the point? I am says I am with you and you're afraid of Canaanites? Yes, very afraid because we are human beings. And so our lives need to be framed with this promise that for believers, I am is with you. I am with you. Where I call you, I will provide. You will be able to glorify me. The stuff you want to do that's just for you, you're on your own. But what is for me, I will empower. We hear the 
echo in Joshua where God says, just as I was with Moses. Do you see? Moses, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To, to Joshua, just as I was with Moses. Just as I was with Moses, so I am, says, I am with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. In Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened of these people. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, is with you wherever you go. That's incredible news. Yeah, God's called us to great things, and great things are defined in terms of glorifying Him. And when we want to glorify Him, He's in. He's in. It's about our hearts before it's about anything else. Look, we need the promises of God to be able to get up in the morning and face the day in a way that will glorify God. I mean, we need His promises to be able to love in the face of hatred, right? How do you love in the face of hatred? Because I am says, I am with you. I will give you what you need. We need the promise to be gracious in the face of ugliness. To persevere in, in the face of challenge that is relentless. That is chronic, you see. It's hard to get up in the morning and face chronic, isn't it? Our lives have to be framed with a promise. I am says, I am with you. Now you go build this temple and you don't worry about these people. I will do this and it will bring more glory. If it's framed with the belief in the promise, then the first temple. An administrative assistant who is living well and loving well, supported by God, God of the promise, is more glorifying to God than a CEO who pushes people around in his own strength for his own purposes. You can write that down. And heaven looks at those two people differently. And that CEO is on his or her own in that. And all, I, all we've got to say from a biblical perspective to that person is good luck with that long term. Because that's not going to produce a life that glorifies God. That's not going to produce a life that actually taps into that undeserved happiness that is given to an undeserved people through Jesus to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. So what will make the difference in the second house is the people will make the difference. Um, same today. We need to hear the call of God in our lives to serve Him in His strength and in His promise. So first is the glory of the house will be greater because it's framed by the promise. Secondly is the glory of the house is greater because it's empowered by the presence of the Savior. This is really amazing. Verse 7 for thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And here's that famous verse, probably the most famous verse in the entire book of Haggai. It's Haggai 2.9. The latter glory of this house shall be greater 
than the former, says the Lord of hosts. In this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Meaning this house will be greater and even this house, glory will be greater later than now. Why is that? It's not just because of the, the, the promise. It's not just because those people who had been so chastened in Babylon and came back to God and then been brought back by the preaching of Haggai to repent to God and soften in their hearts. Um, it's not just that. It's also about what would happen in this temple that did not happen in the first one. You know what would happen in this temple? This is the temple that the Messiah would come to. Now, I know the silver is mine, the gold is mine, and all this, and I realize that, I don't know if you know, like, temple history, but their Solomon's temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. You know, Cyrus the Great sent them back. They, they rebuild the temple under Haggai and Zechariah. Ezra records this as well. And um, that temple is then wildly enhanced by King Herod. I don't know if you're aware of that. And all of this gold from all of the from Rome, basically, and, and all of this, the, 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 when you talk about the, the size of the temple and all that, it's incredible what happened to the temple before Jesus, right before Jesus' time. So some people say, well, that's, this is about King Herod. I don't think so. I mean, maybe so. The gold is mine, the silver, you know, maybe so. Verse 9, the, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place... I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And, and God's Messiah would come and also the, the Holy Spirit would be given and, and the nations would stream as they did at the day of Pentecost right there in that temple. But what I'd like to do is, is take you to a very interesting moment in Scripture. It's a moment, we, we sometimes read it around Christmas. It's huge. It's huge. Do you, would you like to, to be brought along to the exact moment that the Messiah came to the temple and how it's framed in terms of the greater glory of the second half? If you'd like to turn there, it's a lengthy passage. You might want to turn there. It is Luke 2, 22 through 32. It is the story of Simeon. A man who had been awaiting the consolation of Israel. A godly man who was waiting for the, the Messiah, the consolation of Israel to come. Luke 2.22 says, And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they, meaning Mary and Joseph, brought him, Jesus, the baby, two-year-old Jesus, brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy unto the Lord. And, and they brought him to offer sacrifice in the temple according to what is in the law of the Lord. It can be a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout and he was longing, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, for the coming of the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. 
till he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And he came into the and, and he came in the Spirit, moved by the Spirit. He came into the temple. And, and when Mary and Joseph were bringing Jesus for the first time into the temple, he intercepted them on the, the steps of the entrance of the temple, you see. And he came in the Spirit to the temple. And, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was according to the law, this old man intercepted them and he, and he took this baby into his arms. He took him up into his arms and he blessed God and he said in, in a very emotional and worshipful voice, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Now I can die. It's all good. Why? For my eyes have seen your salvation. He is here. Right here in my arms. Right here in this temple. My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Yes, glory. Greater glory, you see. The glory of the latter house will be greater and the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former Yes, though it's small. Yes, though you have all this against you. I am with you, declares the Lord. And it is greater when Jesus is in the midst of it. That's what makes it greater. I love Matthew twelve sixteen, where Jesus said of himself, In the temple, I tell you the truth, one greater than the temple is here. Oh my! Oh my, you don't say that in the temple unless you are the Lord's Christ. I tell you the truth, one greater than the temple is here. You see, the temple was built for God to, to dwell in. It was built to be the, the overlap of heaven and earth, the, the glory of God. And it was glorious, but the greater glory is that someone who is greater than the temple and He was there. I would like to close with an illustration and a challenge for us. Now, I know that Hollywood can be pretty cheesy when it comes to spiritual themes. I realize that. Please indulge me, nevertheless. <laughs> but, you know, one of the things that I like and to be honest, I'll say that I relish. Are these scenes in, in there are movies that have these scenes. And um, I'm not a, a film expert, so I'm just going to call it a dream sequence. I think that's what you call it, all right? So it's like somebody is, it's not happening right there and then. Somebody's having a dream. A lot of dream sequences in films, right? <laughs> Malika's like, I think, is that what you call it, Malika? No. Okay, sorry about that. I'll find out for the, tune in, we'll, we'll tune in for the, come for the second service, you'll find out what it's actually called. For now, it's a dream sequence. But I really like those dream sequences where people are suddenly in heaven. You know what I'm talking about? And a lot of these dream sequences have to do with a movie where um, a person's wife is killed in scene one. 
or their wife and kids are killed in scene one. There's lots of movies like this. They're, they're, or there's, there's great separation between, between people early, and then the movie's filled with all kind of tension and strife and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And, um, and then there's this dream sequence. It's totally different from all the strife, all the killing, all this. You see these people in heaven, like the wife and the children, for instance. We'll get to a specific one in a moment. And what is on their faces in the dream sequence? Totally at peace. Total contentment. They see this person that's having the dream. There's absolute acceptance and welcome and joy. It is like a total relaxing of all this tension in the story. And I am drawn to that. Um, This is powerfully true in the clothes of the movie Gladiator with Russell Crowe. You can Google or YouTube the last scene of this movie. I dare you. You'll cry. Dare you. I actually did it to remember. I remembered the movie. I remembered the scene. And then I actually Googled it and then cried at my desk. Starring Russell Crowe, who is Maximus. Don't want to tell the whole story, but he's trying to restore the glory of Rome. He's trying to restore the Roman Senate, etc. Maximus has, has killed the evil emperor in the arena. You know, you can just kind of see that resolution is coming. Except for one thing, Maximus is mortally wounded as he is making all things right. Okay, this is good storytelling. And as he is passing out of consciousness, he's in and out of this dream sequence. The dream begins as he opens an old Roman door. And he opens, and what you see is a beautiful Italian landscape, you know, with the real pointy shrub-like trees, all lined and all of that. It's just just beautiful, this, this landscape, this heaven. And there, who does he see? The two people that were killed early in the film. There is his wife. There is his little boy. And they are waiting for him. And there is nothing but love. I'm talking about we go from the arena and cold-blooded murder and empire to nothing but love. Nothing but acceptance Nothing but contentment. It's the same in other movies. Sometimes you even see adversaries treating each other that way. Now, I know that's not a Christian movie, but could I just suggest that's the point? That's the point. You see, why do non-Christian movies tell that story? Because we are hardwired for God, for glory, For a garden where there isn't all this strife and all this selfishness that we feel and that we act out on and there's, you know, there's not all this punishment and there's, there's not all this competitiveness and, you know, all the things that just are the cucklebirds of, of human life and the jagged edges and the tragedy, the Shakespearean tragedy of a fallen world is absent 
even non-believers know this. And they create scenes without malice, envy, strife, hurt, anger. Why am I telling you all this? Because that's what the glory of the second temple is about. It's about Jesus in the midst. It is about forgiveness that was won on a tree right outside that temple. It is about forgiveness that is given to people who don't deserve it. It is about love that overwhelms unloving people and draws them into the very arms of God forever. I am, then says, I am with you. You can love if Jesus is in the midst. You see, you can forgive. That's why the second temple is greater. It is the place of forgiveness. It is the place where the nations hear and see the dream sequence. Oh, I know it's a fallen world. Oh, I know that we will never show that to anybody with perfection, right? I've never shown it. But I tell you what, with Jesus in the middle of our lives, forget the structures for a moment. With Jesus in the middle of our lives, there will be flashes of glory that we as believers recognize as Jesus in the midst. There will be flashes of wonder and glory in something countercultural and anti-gravity that even those outside of Christ will see and recognize to be just like that dream sequence in real time, in real life. The glory of the church is the Savior who lives in our hearts as living stones being built up into a spiritual temple to give sacrifices worthy of God because of Him. You can trust a bleeding Savior. I can trust a bleeding Savior. I don't know about these idols that demand everything, but I'm going to tell you something. You can trust a bleeding Savior, and you can lay down your weapons and trust a bleeding Savior. Right? Because a bleeding Savior, you have no doubt in your mind, I have no doubt in my mind, but that He loves me and He is for real. And this is the Christ. When it comes to forgiveness, you can trust a bleeding Savior. You can go first. Because of a bleeding Savior. We can see peace. We can see reconciliation between peoples and within the body of Christ. And when the church becomes known less as a place of hypocrites and more as a place of love than the foretaste of glory itself, that's a good day for the church who is none other Christ's bride, you, that He died for, that He loves. Finally, I want to say something about the construction of Highland's new sanctuary. It is about glorifying God and just being Highland's into the future. But I would like for you to take it as a challenge. I'd like for us to say in our hearts, Lord, you know what? Would you grow us so that this second house will be glorious 
and more glorious than this church. I didn't say about the building. Could you look at that construction and say, you know what, that reminds me that I need to trust God. Could you see that and say, God, give me hunger to be one that trusts you, one that glorifies you. And I would ask you, because we're talking in Haggai about temples, I would ask you to pray not only that God would change us with or without a structure. I'm just using the structure as a, as a motivation, as a physical point to maybe move us, maybe to give us some months to really think about this before we occupy that place. And maybe that the gospel of peace more than ever might just stream into the greater Jackson area and flashes of real forgiveness, real glory, real reconciliation and peace could be known through this people. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you're in our midst. We do long for heaven. We'll tell you that right now. Thank you that you've given us reconciliation here on earth. Would you be in our midst in such a way that we would trust you, that we would lay down our lives, that you would empower us, that we would believe in your promise? Lord, would you change us? Not only for the sake of being able to glorify you, and enjoy that undeserved happiness with you. Would you change us, Lord, for the sake of our families, for the sake of the body of Christ, and even for the sake of the greater Jackson area. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.